Well, it was to send the um, Australian input into this discussion, but I, I, I think probably um, it, it's opportune for me now as, uh, as chair to start and do a brief, um, a brief overview of today, and um, then others can join as, um, as their diaries permit. Um, today is our seventh uh, masterclass. We've got an international group of attendees, as we've proved already. Um, my name is Richard Bayfield, and about some um, Two months ago, I spoke briefly around collaboration. Um, this was my prompt on that day. Um, it was just before the Six Nations, and that's a, a rather shrunk rugby ball, which um, is a good prompt to remind me about the England rugby team. Um, <laughs> I'm going to move no on comment. from that. <laughs> no comment, Richard. Yeah, I'll, I'll move on from that one. Very As a Welshman, I have every you, Richard. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, my next prompt is um, a dusty copy of Constructing the Team by Michael Latham, which um, was published almost 30 years ago now. Um, and that's the focus of our title today, to collaborate or to another breach, an unpalatable choice. And it was Michael Latham who published that, um, to reiterate and expand upon what's long been accepted as good practice in, in the industry, but is often honoured more in the breach than in the observance. Um, today, we have two international experts speaking, Graham Thompson and Amanda Bucklow. Um, they're going to be looking at why is collaboration such a difficult choice for some and what can make collaboration more palatable. Um, Graham has an international reputation, first as an engineer and then, then as a respected lawyer um, on major infrastructure projects. He began at uh, Pinsent Masons and then moved on to King and Wood Mallisons. Um, he has an international reputation for developing and effecting successful collaborative construction contracting models, uh, particularly in project alliance work. He's co-founder and CEO of Affinitex and has steered the exponential global adoption of disruptive intelligence document formatting. Um, Amanda, Amanda Bucklow has forged her reputation from the mediation field, focusing on accelerated dispute resolution as a core business process against the background of commercial and legal imperatives. Um, she was awarded the first mediation fellowship by the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators back in 2008. Um, she was an early adopter to using mediation in project delivery in a project mediator role, or as she names it, a collaboration catalyst. And I think jargon's important here because um, it's important that we recognise that many of us do the same roles, but we call ourselves something different. But Amanda's a collaboration catalyst. Um, and she has some very unique insights into the culture and resourcing of disputes and what's behind them. Um, as usual, we're aiming for... 30 minutes presentation, then 15 to 20 minutes Q&A. Um, please look at the chat, please make comments in the chat. I'll be looking at it um, intermittently. And um, I now hand over to Graham and Amanda. I think Graham will start. Why is collaboration such a difficult choice for some and what can make it more palatable? Thank you. Thanks very much, Richard. Amanda, do you mind um, doing the honors with the presentation if that's okay? Yes, I would. 
Um, but uh, thanks for thanks for the kind introduction, Richard. And um, it was nice of you to call me an expert. But looking at the attendees here, I think I'm talking to the experts. So uh, it's going to be an engaging conversation. Please ping any questions in that you have, and I look forward to the questions and answers at the end. Just a second, whilst I get these slides up for you. There we go. There we go. If just ping down a couple, please, Amanda. It'd be great. Yeah, this way I'd like to start. I always like when we talk about construction, our industry matters. And I think it's always just good to pause for a couple of seconds and see why we matter. I and mean, we're big, we impact the world. Um, 2022, it's estimated that $12.9 trillion will be spent in construction-related activity. This is 13% of the global GDP. Construction sector employs 7% of the world's working population. And it's a rapidly growing sector. By 2030, with population growth and other activities, it's predicted that the demand for construction output will increase by 85%. And we impact the planet. And we shouldn't take our eyes off that. Construction sector consumes about 50% of the planet's raw material output. And 30% of global greenhouse emissions are attributable to buildings. So we have a big, big part to play in the um, successful custodianship of the planet. Uh, next slide, please. And sadly, we're not very efficient at the moment in how we do it. And if you look over the last 20 years at the productivity growth in construction compared to, say, manufacturing, you'll see that annually for the last 20 years, construction productivity has improved a measly 1% per annum. And manufacturing, um, as a, by comparison, has improved 3.6% um, per annum. And if you, if you took the productivity of the construction sector, had we matched that of the manufacturing sector in the last 20 years, the world would have been better off each year to the tune of $1.6 trillion. And this in no um, small part might tie in with this slide, that we're laggards in digitization. McKinsey did a um, report across a whole bunch of industry sectors in 2015, looking at where they stood in terms of leadership in uh, digitization. And the top blue, very good. Um, bottom red, very bad. And uh, you'll see that um, construction is uh, got a nose ahead of hunting in terms of uh, McKinsey's ranking on digitization. And we all know there's opportunity for digitization. And when you, when you look at you know, real leadership, I always think of Elon Musk and the like, you know, and there's people out there that really seize the opportunity. And we're yet to do that in construction. I'm an optimist by heart. So I always think maybe we're just on the cusp of being able to achieve that. So I want to jump a little bit and turn to the subject at hand, which is um, collaboration and innovation. And uh, talking about just being on the cusp, it's worth looking back in history, I think, a little bit, looking at the reports. A lot of work has gone into analysing the pros and cons of how we should approach construction. Uh, so I want to go back and uh, capture the, all the significant ones um, in the UK in particular. But we're going to start off offshore first, over to our um, French friends um, over the channel. And I'm going to go back 300 years, 300 plus years, and uh, Marshal Vauban was the uh, chief of fortification for uh, Louis the Fourteenth. Probably tomorrow. And I'm, I'm going to read just a little bit of this. 
Uh, but a number of the projects weren't going too well at that stage. And he wrote to his master and saying, the disorder of these projects is caused by the depressed prices frequently obtained for the works. These are cut prices, they're illusionary. I like this, especially as a contractor is working at a loss. It's like a drowning man who clutches at straw. Abandon this, re-establish good faith. Give the estimation of the work and not refuse a reasonable payment to a contractor who will fulfill his obligations. That will always be the best transaction you'll be able to find. So wise words, I think, from a few hundred years ago. I'll, I'll um, bring myself more up to speed um, now. Um, go back to uh, the UK and look at the ports in the UK. Uh, one of the first major criticisms of the standard of performance of UK construction was in a book, Building to the Skies, uh, 1934, which was comparing the success of the um, US in being able to build skyscrapers with the performance of the UK construction industry. Uh, then in 1944, during the Second World War, the Simon Report looked at uh, building contracts, criticised then the tendency of clients to simply accept the cheapest price um, with the problems that come from low bids. And the Simon Report recommended a more collaborative approach to design and construction with early contractor involvement. And jumping on to the 60s, 1962, the Emerson Report criticised lack of cohesion between the parties, pointed to shortcomings and fragmentation in the industry, particularly between the various stakeholders. A couple of years later, 1964, the Bamwell Report focused on team relationships and the importance of teams, criticised the traditional separation between design and construction, and also criticised the industry for having entrenched positions and that it appeared to operate with a lack of speed and with a lack of purpose. And jumping on to the latter part of the, um, the last, um, last century, 1994, which Richard's already mentioned, Latham report construction, constructing the team. And as we all know, Latham was highly critical of the industry, labelling it ineffective, adversarial, fragmented, etc. And what Latham proposed is that the industry needs to move away from its adversarial structure, need to adopt a more integrated approach with greater partnering, greater teamwork. It specifically highlighted a need for a specified duty to deal fairly with each other and the supply chain in an atmosphere of mutual cooperation. And when you look at payment terms that are in place now in the number of contracts, you wonder how well that um, fair dealing and um, mutual cooperation is playing out in practice. Uh, a few years later, the Egan Report, Rethinking Construction, actually suggested that the whole industry as a whole was underachieving. And importantly said, this shouldn't be a matter of just looking what we, at what we do now and doing it a little bit better. We should actually be looking across government, across industry, with major clients and doing things entirely differently. And Egan proposed integrated project processes, there needed to be improved skills and that needed to replace competitive tendering with long-term relationships. And finally highlighting that leading public sector bodies should be best practice clients. Then jumping to the 21st century, uh, 2016, the Pharma Review, Modernise or Die, said there are long-standing problems in the construction industry that absolutely must be addressed particularly highlighting lack of innovation and lack of collaboration and noting with concern the non-existent research and development culture, 
which again, I think ties back in with the um, digitization. A year later in 2017, um, there was an international standard, ISO 44001, was um, launched on collaborative business relationship management systems, and which has been adopted um, on a number of projects um, in the UK, at least in so far as its principles, if not certification. Uh, the next year, 2018, the Institute of Civil Engineers, along with government and major industry players, um, launched Project 13. And this program focuses on greater organisational collaboration and particularly focuses on less dependence on traditional contracting models, talks about project alliancing and other um, collaborative relationships. Late in the same year, um, Project X, which is a um, collaboration between the UCL uh, government and again, major industry players, is a research collaboration looking at trying to get the information in place to improve UK project delivery. So there's lots of initiatives, lots of thinking, um, all aimed at the same thing, trying to improve the industry. So it's worth now just having a quick look at where are we now? How are we doing? I think that one of the easiest places to look is the government's major projects portfolio um, and look at the status of that portfolio in 2020. The portfolio has 125 projects, total life cost of 448 billion. 34 of those projects are infrastructure and construction, whole life cost of 214 billion, namely 45% of the overall portfolio. Interesting to note that in 2020, the portfolio had the smallest number of projects by number since 2013. And at the same time, the confidence in the successful delivery of projects had dropped to its lowest ever level. I'm picking out a few um, um, points out of it. Only three of the 125 projects are rated as highly likely to achieve objectives. Further 18 are rated as probable. And infrastructure and construction, only one project out of 34 is rated as highly likely and a further five is probable. HS2, which is the largest project in the portfolio at 55.7 billion, is ranked as unachievable. So in summary, looking across the government's portfolio by its own assessments of its own ability to perform, um, only 0.6% by value of all projects and programs in the portfolio are rated as highly likely to meet objectives. And this rises to a whopping 4.5% if you add in probable projects. So where we stand at the moment, not wonderful, um, by our own assessment of our own performance. Let's just pick out one of those projects, Crossrail. It's interesting to look at Crossrail, and I'm just going to look very briefly at time, cost, and a couple of things on contract administration. But, and, and we all know the story, but in time, central section of Crossrail is due to open December 2018. Four months ahead of that, Crossrail announced that it was going to be a bit late, to the surprise of um, TfL and the uh, City of London. And um, the they announced it was going to be delayed. Wasn't quite sure how long the delay was going to be. Turns out the delay is going to be three and a half years or more. So four months ahead of the opening date, going to be delayed a bit, chaps. Um, turns out to be three and a half year delay. And then on the cost, the original estimate, 14.8 billion, current estimate, 18.7 billion. And on contract administration side, just out of interest, 
the contracts were 36 main contracts, largely NEC3 based. National Audit Office pointed out that in um, January 2016, Crossrail was managing 21,000 compensation events um, that have been notified to it by the various contractors. So at this point, okay, it's really good to look at things, look at where we are. As I said, I'm an optimist. So I always say, well, what are the things that can be done? How can we, how can we actually give life to, um, to the, um, the ambitions that we all have? And on that point, I think the question is, well, what gets in the way? What gets in the way of us achieving what we all want to do? And on that point, Amanda, I might ping it over to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Graham. Um, so having had an opportunity to sort of refresh our memories of the uh, huge quantity of reports, all of which have these common themes, and I think it was really helpful to do that. Um, the question is, you know, why doesn't it happen if everybody knows that it's a good thing to do and they've been given a mandate to do it, why, why, why isn't it happening? Um, and I think I need to start first, just what exactly do we mean by the customer? As Richard mentioned, you know, terminology, jargon, etc. but this, this word, the customer, is, is, is thrown around and I'm not sure that we ever really are quite focused on who that person is, and certainly in terms of um, construction and infrastructure for the public sector. So, yeah, we've got a client, um, we've got a project manager, we've got a solicitor, uh, maybe it's an alliance partner, End users, that's quite a good one. Stakeholder, well, I'm never quite sure what that means. It seems to be a catch-all for anybody who happens to be interested but maybe doesn't have any authority or influence. The government, that's a, that's a big one. Customer has to appear in there. And then, ah, the taxpayer. And that tends to be the one that actually... Um, actually pays the bill in the end. And they pay the bill, not just in terms of the money, but in terms of loss of facilities when it comes to delays. So looking at other aspects um, that underpin the construction industry or, or corporate um, behavior in general, shareholder value is king at the moment. That's kind of what everybody works for. And the lowest cost is queen. And um, the customer, whichever label you want to put on, is, is the sort of pale pawn in the corner. Uh, I, I want to ask, well, are we sure that the customers hold the same values? Do they hold these things as king and queen? Um, or do they hold other things? And our focus has been very much in responding to many of these reports, particularly the more recent ones, is, is simplifying contracts and mandating certain forms of dispute resolution and, and really working with the detail of that. And to my mind, that is honouring the breach rather more than honouring the observance. And it is adversarial by nature. The contract, well, it exists to apportion liability. And however much you might start out wanting to construct a contract that you know, deals with all these wonderful uh, things that would bring collaborative uh, uh, approach, it's still adversarial. Uh, and disputes 
are the result of that adversarial nature. But the truth is that actually very few of them end up in court, actually in court. However, claims and disputes are hardwired into the culture. And more importantly than that, they are embedded into the cash flow. So disputes are destructive. And they're destructive because they drive business decisions, they underpin the culture and therefore behavior. Conflict, on the other hand, can be very constructive because when people are in conflict, they have realized they have opposing points of view. And when dealt with respectfully, that leads to innovation. We also have an enduring conflation of accountability and blame. Again, terminology, that's adversarial. Apportioning blame is not the same as appropriate risk management or risk allocation. And to my mind, there is a direct and measurable relationship between value and behavior because collaboration is behavior and behaviors deliver value. Behaviour is the expression of values, beliefs and assumptions. And so when we're looking at what's getting in the way, we should be looking at what are the values, beliefs and assumptions of the people that are operating and what drives those? Well, values are determined by the leadership and behaviours which reflect those values, whether that, those are positive behaviours or unhelpful behaviours, those are the behaviours that are being rewarded because they align with the leadership. And so one of my key areas of, of emphasis is on the kind of leadership that we have. Collaboration is not just a behavior. Collaboration is an experience. And I think for those of us who've worked on really great collaboration projects, um, they remain very firmly in our mind because the experience was so positive. The results, not always, you know, perfect, but the, the overall experience is very positive. Working in that way is extremely productive. And being part of a team that are all pointed in the same direction, deliver results under budget, ahead of time, and it's something that the customer wants. Um, that is really great. And I know that Richard has spoken about his experience with Honda, um, where their first plant uh, was really very, very stressful. And when they came to build the second plant, they took a completely different point of view. And as a result of that, they reduced their costs phenomenally. I think it was something like 40%, um, but uh, Richard will correct me if I'm wrong. My own experience, which remains in my mind, is um, a project that I did with uh, Network Rail many years ago. And uh, there was a, um, an enforcement order with a three million pound price tag coming down the track, excuse the pun, but it was, and it was on an express train. And uh, the approach to dealing with this, it was about planning and risk assessment and the fact that people were getting killed on the track about 60 people over the previous four years, 65, I think it was, and something had to be done. Well, the estimate for a software um, project, which would address this, putting all the data in one place and giving people the same access uh, to, uh, to the same data, 
um, was about, was over a million. That was CapEx and that was going to take a very long time to get approval. Uh, we didn't have that. So we took a risk. We took a risk. We found a software developer who would work our way and uh, we engaged the front line to co-develop this with us. And they worked like hell. They negotiated for a broadband connection. They negotiated for uh, new, new computers and they were absolutely focused on this and including a very significant number of complainers plus about 1,500 construction companies, 1,500 were engaged in this project. And um, they just worked and uh, worked it in. They just kept going because they were motivated by, not by the cost savings, there were some, not by the improved um, management of uh, resources, they were going to be improved, but because this was going to save lives, their mates' lives. And that was a value that was absolutely in, in their uh, mindset. Uh, it was just part of their being. Um, I will tell you that instead of uh, north of one million pounds, that project from concept to full implementation, it took 12 weeks. And the cost was 120,000 pounds with 100% redundancy. So that collaborative experience was an absolute, it was brilliant at uh, what we could achieve on very little money. It wasn't necessarily well looked after afterwards though. So once experience never forgotten. And I would like to invite people to start recognizing the value of conflict and not the cost of disputes because the value of conflict is a part of um, risk, uh, early risk warning. People only argue because they care about something. We should uh, encourage and reward early conflict resolution because when that happens, cost savings flow from collaborative behaviors. That is just the way it happens. Sorry, <clears throat> and that's collaborative. So Graham, you're up next. Thank you very much, Amanda. Um, just on collaboration, um, there's plenty of results of collaboration working. That was a great story of yours, Amanda. I really like it. The only empiric study that I'm aware of on um, collaborative contracts, really, or the best one, is a review of Australian project alliances. And over the period of 2008 to 2012, there were 60 project alliances um, carried out in Australia. And as I mentioned before, it's one of the themes of Project 13 as project alliancing. There's some people in this call that are actively involved in project alliancing, including Adrian Bird. Um, the, uh, so the 60 projects, and the first slide is simply going to look at the cost outcomes. And you'll see here that 85% um, of the project alliances of those 60 were delivered um, on or under budget. And the under budget's between 10%, 20%, up to 30%. Um, moving on to the time outcomes for those 60 projects. Uh, again, the bulk of the projects, about 80% of the projects, uh, were completed on time or ahead of schedule. So that's the only empiric study I'm aware of that's dealt with a lot of a particular sort of um, collaborative contract. So we know that um, results uh, matter. And then so um, 
Back on the point of what gets in the way of collaboration, though, and I give my thanks to uh, Bill Taylor and the Institute of Collaborative Working for this, um, this slide. So thank you, Bill. Um, what gets in the way of collaboration? And one of the first things is really goes back to the business case. In the business case, if we wanted to work collaboratively, it should be in the business case. There should be a collaborative value proposition. And often in business cases, the reason and intent for collaboration or innovations lost at the outset or never expressed at all. And if that, that's the case, it's going to lead to inappropriate commercial and procurement processes and uh, approaches and possibly um, poor program management structures. Now, combine that with the fact that there's often commercial misalignment with collaboration aims. So we believe that we want to be collaborative. Uh, but when we go through a procurement process, um, it trips up, stumbles in lots of areas. One of the things we choose the wrong form of contract. We don't actually choose the most collaborative contract for our purposes. Uh, we actually have inappropriate risk transfer. So we're passing risk transfer to the wrong parties. We penalise parties. There's plenty of stories on, on, um, on uh, that. One of the public accounts committees, um, I remember um, a um, speaker from industry saying that you're putting on us the entire uncapped risk of uh, Brexit. And we don't know what that means. You haven't yet defined what Brexit is. Change of law, you're saying, is our responsibility. You, the government, wants us to take the entire uncapped risk of Brexit. We don't know whether it means we can get labour. We don't know what it means. But that risk somehow sits on us, the industry. So interesting points, I think. Um, and then, of course, there's a bunch of um, other items, which I won't go through in details, but you can imagine what they are. Poor leadership, poor governance, lots of trust issues, baggage, a lack of belief in collaboration, um, too many stakeholders not involved properly, et cetera, um, cultural differences and the like, um, setting up the wrong commercial KPIs, et cetera. Um, but through all that, I want to say, as I said, I'm an optimist, there's a path to this and it's not rocket science. And when you're looking at this, you really need to think what works for companies like, how did it work for Elon Musk? How does it work for Elon Musk when he's doing electric cars? when he's setting up SpaceX, when he's um, doing satellite internet to improve um, internet connections for the worlds, including the world's poorest nations. How did it work for Amazon when they're setting up Amazon, which has started off as a logistics um, exercise and construction is largely a logistics exercise. Um, how does it work for Hyperloop? You know, what, what's their approach? And now I don't know if I'm sure most of you are aware of Project Neom in Saudi, which is, which is uh, the world's giga project at the moment, um, 500 billion US um, dollars. And when you look at the vision and how they're um, proposing that the city should be built, this is really transformational thinking. And if you want to do that, say, well, what are the steps that these people adopt? And the first and basic, as Amanda spoke to before, is just simple leadership. When I say simple leadership, leadership. I've got to have a vision. I've got to have a belief. I've got to ensure that people see that, understand it, our, our mission, our values, our ethics, etc. All comes from leadership. And then that's your fundamental foundation, which then enables you to say, well, I want to work collaboratively, if that's what you want to do. To achieve where I want to go in transformation, I need to do work collaboratively. And uh, if I need to work collaboratively, I think the first step is always, I have to look inwards. I've got to look at myself first. How we, how do I operate? How do we operate collaboratively? Do that before you start looking at your business partners, industry, other stakeholders and the like. Um, a number of us are always a bit amused when we look at tenders go out and it's like you've picked a standard form contract, 
Um, you've made some amendments to it, which are generally not in the direction of collaboration, more in the direction of penalty or risk transfer, passing it off to your industry partners. And then you've added a few words on at the end that say, you shall collaborate to us. <laughs> and then once the contract's signed, you go, oh, so do we have to do anything on that collaboration clause? So collaboration, collaborative work has got to be embedded in your organisation. It's got to be part of your, I call it part of your DNA. It's who we are, it's how we operate. And when you look at these successful companies, it's what they do. Only once you've done that can you really start looking at innovation because innovation only works when you're looking at teams. And I'm not just talking teams in your own organisation. This is teams with yourself, with your industry partners, with other stakeholders. They'll only work together effectively as teams if you've got the building blocks of good collaboration. So you've got the right structures in place, you're going to reward innovation, you're going to accept risk, et cetera. Once you've got those three building blocks in place, then you can take the disruptive measures that lead to transformation. And for our industry to, I, I suggest for our industry to achieve what we need to do for the contribution we make to the planet, that those building, we need to focus on just those logical building steps. Um, shifting from that, which is sort of the high level to just some basic practical steps. If we say that collaboration is the more palatable choice and we need to collaborate to innovate, et cetera, then there are some practical steps. And the first one is just commitment. I need to commit to collaborative working. It's not just a few extra words I'm throwing on, I'm not throwing the word collaboration around. I'm committing to doing that and doing all the things I need to do to ensure its success. And from a government point of view, or the, let's say government point of view, if doing that, if that's what you want to do, the first thing you need to do is choose a truly collaborative contract. This, this, is, this is the first engagement you're having you know, officially in the marketplace. And if you want a collaborative structure, make sure that your contract truly reflects that. And if your contract reflects it, terms and conditions, et cetera, your procurement process should build on that. There's procurement processes that do that. And then when I enter into the contract, I should be embedding collaborative contract management. And what do I mean by that? I mean, get away from the silo process, have single versions of the truth, have single data resources, so that if I'm looking at asset conditions and asset registers and that, we're all looking at up-to-date versions, real-time information at our fingertips, up-to-date versions of the contracts, up-to-date dashboards showing contractual performance, et cetera. And um, so embed collaborative contract management, get rid of the siloed approach to life. Um, there shouldn't be such a thing as crossrail at four months out. You say you end up announcing a delay that comes out to be three and a half years. There's just something wrong in that. You know, there's something we need to learn from that and ensure that we don't repeat that. And so HS2 shouldn't be a re sort of revision of crossrail. It should be something better and different and um, likely to produce way better results. And then you need to, as Amanda said, you've got to support risk-taking. You know, risk is an important part of business. Do you think Elon Musk or Amazon or Hyperloop would be out there if they weren't taking calculated, measured risks to make substantial improvements um, to, their, to achieving their vision? And tied in with that's embracing technology. I mean, we all know intuitively that technology is part of the future for construction. You've got to embrace it. You know, and there's going to be leaders here and there's going to be laggards. And the lead is going to be the people that will reap the success. And the laggards are going to be the companies that fall to one side.
and tied in with that requires this, you've got to inspire and reward innovation and be part, part, of the, part of the journey. So I think these are all measurable, achievable steps. Um, and so that, they're the practical steps that I propose. And then, um, Amanda, I'm going to ping back to you. You've got, um, I love your, um, your uh, approach to practical steps. Well, my practical steps come from the point of view of a focus on, on conflict and, and disputes and, and actually how you, you manage those. And um, what my first practical step is I, I strongly suggest that um, you engage a mediator or confidant or um, critical friend um, to assist when scoping right at the very beginning. Somebody who is not involved, has got no vested interest, is actually sort of putting a finger on a soft spot and saying, well, what about this? How are you going to manage that? Right at the very beginning. So that the whole approach to um, disputes is, is managed completely differently and therefore give a better chance of there being a more collaborative contract. Um, the second one is that I... I strongly believe that we should measure the value of conflicts resolved and not the cost of disputes litigated. And you can measure the, the value of conflicts if you respect those and you actually uh, take note of them. It's, a, it's, it's, another, it's another exercise in data gathering, but it will give you a lot of extremely important information. And then introduce measures for dealing with conflict so that the skills are valued. The measures, I mean by measuring how much people do deal with conflict so that those skills are valued within the organization and that will consequently support the business case for skills training. And by the way, um, these skills are leadership skills. So they are an investment in the people who are leaders of the future as well. And everybody can be a leader then match those frontline measures with managerial measures and get that sort of reciprocity because if it's all on the front line, it's a little bit like passing the risk down the supply chain, but it's got to be managed. If these people do this and they need this kind of help, then the supervisory leadership, managerial um, sector of the company needs to respond to support that. And in sharing the responsibility, it builds a safe environment. It's part of the commitment. And then five, reward those who identified the problems. Uh, whoever it was, I can't remember, who said, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. I think he should be sent to jail if he's still alive and left there for a very long time. Because actually what the saying should be is when you bring me problems, bring me choices, which is a much better way of saying, I want you to think about what you're doing when you bring me the problem. But, you know, coming up with a solution. So I'm suggesting that we have an industry award for conflict resolution, dealing with conflict. And that might be any, any kind of approach, which could be technological, it could be whatever it is, but the, that shared data uh, that we are uh, aiming for, and maybe it should be sponsored by CIG services. So for me, what makes the difference? Really knowing the values that matter to the customer, the person, the people who are actually, actually paying, not the proxy customer, not the proxy client. Being prepared to take considered risks and feeling supported when things don't go to plan.
Thank, thank you very much, um, Amanda and Graham. That was a real tour de force. And um, I'm going to just sort of start with a brief, brief summary. Um, so I do feel the sort of introduction that um, began with um, Marshall Verban 300 plus years ago um, and, and the cost of building fortresses for Louis XIV. In many ways, there's an argument that we haven't moved much along since then. And there's a question is why don't we learn and what's drawing us back? These, this was always known, John Ruskin, um, it's unwise to pay too much, but it's worse to pay too little. And I think there are some ethical questions around this, um, particularly the leadership that, that Graham highlighted, that sort of, and it's part of our discussion today, you know, why is it so difficult to make these changes? And then I looked at a couple of those slides that you presented, um, Graham, around Australian alliance contracts, where I think 50 out of 60 were both under cost and in program. And there were less than, less than 10 out of the 60 that were actually over, but the deviations weren't major. They were 10, 20% over. Um, they also cited the National Infrastructure Report with um, one out of 35 major projects in the UK actually on track and, and being reported as green. And I believe that um, at the moment we have cross, well, I know for a fact that both Crossrail and HS2, our flagship, our biggest projects in the UK, are actually on red. This is government reporting. Some of us wrote um, to the Treasury around this recently, because actually what we see in this room and with the colleagues that we work with is a, an industry full of competence, full of experts. Again, you mentioned that, Graham. So there's a question there as to why, why we can't innovate and what are these ob obstacles. Um, so I notice on the chat, we've got uh, some comments. Um, Sarah, uh, very often the most effective problem indicators are people in the delivery team who neither have the authority or the tools to solve the problem. I don't know, Sarah, whether you want to expand on that. I think we can give you the, the mic for this, please. Just a second. Where are you, Sarah? If you unmute yourself, then I'll see where you are. While we do that, um, Adrian. There you are. Here we go. So, um, there you go, Sarah. Hi, welcome. We can't hear you, though. Unmute. She is unmuted. Don't tell me we got the problem we had earlier. Okay. I think we might have a technical problem here. So um, I see Adrian Bird has a comment. Can we try you, Adrian? Yeah, sure. Can you hear me? Thank yeah. you, Adrian. Yep. Oh, good, good. Um, I probably don't know very many people on the call, so just very, suppose very, very quick introduction. Um, I work in um, UK um, infrastructure, specifically rail. Um, currently working on um, East West Rail Alliance, um, one of a handful of um, sort of pure alliancing type approaches that have been uh, implemented by Network Rail um, in the UK. Um, I suppose the comment I've just put on there is um, I, I, I like some of the stuff that was that was that, that was on the slides and, and the sort of triangle type approach uh, with leadership being the base of that. Um, but but I think below that a lot of leadership that there's probably a, a belief level I think would probably the if I give it a buzzword 
Um, a lot of the leadership I come across and deal with, I've, I've, I've got a, an underpinning belief that collaboration is expensive. Um, unfortunately, the alliances I've been involved in the UK um, have proved to be expensive as well. Um, and the study that's been done in Australia, trying to unpick and prove that um, the alliance models that, 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 that we're starting to started to use and, and have been implemented in the past 20 years have, have been value for money. I think that, that that question needs to be answered before any sort of leadership will um, we'll, we'll see a wider adoption and a wider use of, of some of the collaborative models. And, and I just wonder with that comment, is there um, a need for a step change? And I'm thinking about the Oxford vaccine, the AstraZeneca um, case story, which is all around collaboration, all around these barriers coming down because there was a greater need for society and a, and a belief. And um, that, that's a very, very informative comment, though, that if, if there's a perception of too much cost, uh, go, go to Graham. What's yeah, your no, I, love it. I love this conversation. And um, the, um, the, the, I look at it and say, so let's assume then that there's costs in collaboration and parties don't have belief in it and the investment. So you actually say, well, what I want to do is not have a very collaborative contract. I want to have a risk transfer contract. So I'll use NEC3. I'll do what Crossrail did. Crossrail is managing 21,000 causative events, ran over by four billion pounds, and um, it's three and a half years late. So that's so that's the alternative. I don't really. We call it the leap of faith. And uh, but you're absolutely right, Adrian. Adrian and I have this conversation a lot. You've got to believe it, you, but we call it the, the leap of faith. You, if you're going to commit to it, you have to believe that it's going to be worth the investment and the way to deliver the project. If you don't do that, you continue doing same, same. And I think that's what we've been doing. Go back to all those government reports. That's why I like going through the history. We've been saying this for 300 years and yeah. we're still saying it. And then you say, well, there's something new. Oh, no, I need to be convinced about that. That's leadership. And so that's why I have my bottom as leadership you have to have leadership believe it can see it and we'll do it and um, you won't have elon musk or any of the companies i mentioned with this view of going i've just got to continue doing it same same unless i'm somehow convinced by some magic answer that there's a better way of doing it so. thank you thank you graham sarah are you unmuted i didn't want to share because are you I can I can see her. Please go ahead, Sarah. No, I can't hear. No, okay then. Um, Roger, you had a comment around leadership. Do, do expand, please, if you can unmute. Yeah, I was echoing what Adrian commented on as well. I think that we can wait too long for leaders to turn around. And there are many examples of pockets in systems doing really well despite the leadership not because of leadership and the more we think about leadership as a distributed function i we can all show it when it's needed it doesn't have to go up a hierarchy it seems to me we've emerged out of a culture that's been very much centered on the self i look after number one first and if we see collaboration as a process between humans of creating things together that we're unable to do on our own, our mindset has to be not the self first. It has to be we, it has to be us, the people on the project. And, and when we show up to situations from 
everyone's needs are important here. How do we reconcile them? How do we work through them? The way we perceive problems, the way we perceive differences, the way we listen to one another changes dramatically. And that then creates the culture Amanda was advocating for and starts to break through the insanity that um, uh, Einstein pointed to, which Graham so eloquently quoted in his presentation. So it starts with us. Where do we define our we? Is it just me that's important here? Or is it everyone on the project team? And I show up from that mindset rather than just a me first one. Thank you, thank you. Amanda. Well, I'd like to respond to that if I may, because I think it's a very important point. And that's why I have a particular emphasis in recognizing and rewarding those kind of behaviors, because unless people feel that they're going to be acknowledged for the initial kind of um, stepping up to that, uh, putting their head above the parapet in a way, um, there has to be a very strong message that you are, that it's going to be not rewarded, but it's, it's actually going to be allowed and you're not going to be sort of ostracized. Because the whole thing about team is, is the last thing you want to be is pushed out like some horses being naughty and stuck out on the side with his head hanging low. And until it's, you know, being um, shown, shown the right sort of uh, humility allowed back into the herd. And, and, and I'm afraid that's how we operate. So having that emphasis on uh, recognizing it as valuable is, is, a start, is a starting point. And, just very quickly, what, why I became a mediator, a, a catalyst, a collaboration catalyst, is because my first career was absolutely fantastic. I was with the most amazing people who just, we just ruled the world in our sector. And a very significant difference between the managing director and me. And we just, we just worked together and we did very, very good business. I then went to work for another company, which was probably the most toxic environment I've ever come across ever. It was horrendous, still successful, still made a, a difference to the company, but my goodness me, what a toll. And it was at the end of those two where I actually recognized the waste in the toxic company, the disputes, the arguments, the way people were protecting their turf, et cetera, was so different from the other one. And, and that was actually that comparison that I did was actually the reason why I thought, well, I just, I, I want to be helping people solve problems, you know, not cleaning up after them. Thank you, Amanda, thank you. Um, I'm just looking at the chat and I'm gonna ask Paul Roberts, um, who, who was the head of uh, construction and property at Honda down at Swindon for, for many years. Um, just a comment on, particularly a comment from Bill Taylor, um, the environment picks up on Amanda's point about setting up the right culture, um, but Honda was very business-like. When I worked there, I felt um, that in, in its professional business-like manner, um, it was possible to ask questions such as what if, and to innovate um, without getting the blame. How, how did you manage that, Paul? And, and what were the key tools, if you're still there? Um, 
what I'd just like to say is going back on what's been some really good points and it creates more thought provoking um, uh, ways of thinking. But I, I, I try to just pick up a couple of the things that's come up. The last one was leadership and behaviors. And I think one of the things we all, in any stage of leadership, because I think there's various stages from the MD of a client company down to the project team and project leader, is when things are going well, we, we're, we're all happy, we're meeting the budget, we're meeting the program, but how do we react when things go wrong? And I won't go into too much detail, but that's a question that um, on a lot of the courses I've been involved with in, is the area, how do we change that behavior of self-protection, just looking after ourselves? And then on collaboration, what does it really mean? And I use partnering as an example. We went through a period of partnering and the issue was that is something that everybody gets along together and everything's going to be unky-dory. Well, I, I have a different view on that. Um, partnering means a, a good game of rugby, a difference of opinion, and there will be knocks and bruises across it. So are there elements in co collaboration we don't really understand? But coming back to your question and set that as a background, Richard, um, what I experienced was a, an organisation that takes a lot of time to arrive at a decision and thinks it through with, well, if this was to happen and that to happen. And also the construction, a pure building, is just something that gets in the way. It's a small part of creating a particular um, manufacturing facility. But if you recall, when we were doing some work, Richard, on... Um, uh, the uh, smelting plant that was an example um, with, with another company, um, there was hardly any building. It was always um, integration of equipment. So the question is, how do you, how, how do you integrate non-constructional activities with the main thrust of a business, which is installation of equipment? So I think what we try to look at is aligning forms of contract, like MF1, iChemE, for example, was another one we looked at, and putting in a, like a clutch mechanism to make it work with JCT. Because we developed an early warning system that isn't as complex as the NEC. It, it's based on very simple things and a strong linkage to program management. Basically, we used to say, we'd say to the supply chain, if you've got a problem, we used to have look at well, you attended them, Richard. Um, look ahead program meetings when the when it got tough going and things were going wrong. The question was, what's the problem? If you're managing your particular section of the program and you don't tell us what's happened, but if you tell us, we'll help you solve it. And nine times out of ten, that worked. So there's a trust element, but I'm. I'm probably going on and on a bit too long so i i will stop i but i hope you lift no. it's keep it simple don't make complex issues um or simple issues complex don't make complicated issues look to make them very simple and break it down 
sorry, that's probably on a too practical level, but... Uh, that, that's very helpful, Paul. So thank you very much. And I, I think it, it centres on my experience was one, it was very professional and actually saved money significantly, put money back into the business. And then you ask the question, why wouldn't anyone do that if they can save money? And, and secondly, it was enjoyable. As Amanda um, said, it was hard work, but we weren't spending days on end um, making claims and having to defend claims and so on. I know there was a comment earlier from David Canning around um, disputes and statutory adjudication. Um, David, are you still with us? David, if you want to expand on that question, I'm conscious that we have overrun. Um, I'm also conscious that most of you are on, online, so it's absolutely right that um, I should flag we're just coming up to um, to 1.30, um, but I'm quite happy to keep going for a few more minutes if, um, if the questions keep coming in and you stay online. Um, Let us have a quick word on the statutory adjudication while you're doing that. Um, yeah. Uh, Richard, a quick word. Statutory adjudication and alliancing actually cuts across what alliancing does because pure alliancing says I won't go to court unless certain things happen. And in all due Australia, New Zealand, UK, etc., uh, they've got statutory adjudication, which says oh, you can't actually get rid of this. You, you, you can go and have adjudication if you wish. So it's the only example I know where adjudication actually, and Amanda will jump in, I'm sure, and have a good view on this. So the adjudication actually cuts across what the parties want to do, which is I don't want to have adjudication. We want to resolve these issues between ourselves. We expressly say so. You can't actually override the law. Having said that, we used to say no one in the alliance will ever go down the statutory adjudication path because it shows that you're not acting in good faith. And certainly that's been the case. No one's gone down the adjudication path. Well, and Graham, it's a very good point because on, on that, this, this is a a very good example of unintended consequences. The, 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 the desire to have some kind of pathway that act, actually accelerated solving problems um, has, is a real uh, uh, honouring the breach. It really does honour the breach because all the working processes from the start, all the approaches are coloured by the fact that that's the way it's answered. So if people want to duck their responsibilities or they want to you know, they don't want to put their head above the parapet or they don't want to actually deal with the conflict, it, it will be dealt with at some point. You don't really have to do anything about it because it's okay. It's in the contract. So that's, that is, you know, I, I don't, when I say I don't like adjudication, I love my adjudicator friends. I'm sure they do a wonderful job, but no, I don't like adjudication because I think it's sets the, it sets the tone for the whole relationship, it will be fixed over there. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I've got a lot to say on that. <laughs> okay. I'd also say that I believe that adjudication has evolved from what Latham was looking at, which was a 28-day process, largely on site, getting a second opinion from an engineer, a QS, to come and look at something and fix it. It's now becoming a, a very expensive legal yeah. process. The first... Um, lessons I had in adjudication were that it wouldn't be, um, acts such as the Human Rights Act wouldn't be, wouldn't be part of it. It was a private process, but once it becomes statutory, it then becomes part of the legal process. So then it becomes part of the human rights process. So it can't just be someone going in there, giving a quick opinion and fixing it. It's, it's got to have that legal baggage around it, which has become expensive. So I, I'm less 
supportive than I was when Latham advocated it. Um, moving on, um, as time permits, um, John Owen from the marine sector, um, would, would you um, comment, um, if you're still there, John, on um, your comments about concurrent design? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, actually, historically, Amanda and I go back a, a little way. Um, I, I was formerly at sea, then involved in marine insurance for many years, um, now doing independent consultancy, but obviously seeing and overseeing a number of, of big projects um, in, in marine construction. Obviously, there's offshore and energy going now. Um, and and um, rare, and I have no personal affiliation to them or otherwise, but rare um, have, have given um, a number of great illustrations on where concurrent con design, uh, either in shipbuilding or in the space industry, um, has proved truly, truly beneficial in, in making things much better at the design stage. Um, and obviously with, with CAD and technology, um, that's possible. But uh, again, it's, as an observer, I, I was curious to understand where concurrent design currently is in the construction industry. And then um, alongside Amanda with my um, mediator's hat on, um, that you know, good ADR clauses um, in contracts at, a, at an appropriate stage are, are critical to heading these things off at the pass. Thank you. Um, any comments on that, Graham, Amanda? No, no, because it's it's a big topic. It's almost another masterclass. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, I, we will come on to in a minute. Um, John Burgess, um, I see you've just written about culture change. Can you um, unmute? Hi, everybody. Hi, Richard, um, um, Amanda, and everybody. Um, uh, fantastic uh, listening to all these comments. Yeah, my, my thought is really just around uh, um, differences uh, that uh, traditionally um, we tend to um, uh, regard differences as something we don't want instead of having a, what I would now suggest is the, the more appropriate attitude of actually looking for differences and embracing them and looking for the advantages that they, they, they give rise to. And it seems to me there may be parallels to the world of collaboration, that collaboration um, ironically is, is different in itself, you know, uh, taking a, a collaborative approach um, and, and would be seen as risky on a personal basis and on a corporate basis. So my fundamental observation is that maybe if we could work on our uh, inducing culture change, a changing culture to our attitude to differences, work along that area uh, could actually be supportive of, of uh, doing things like uh, collaborative working, doing something differently. Thank you, John. Yes, I think um, there's a strong driver now that's an ethical driver for diversity in, in projects, in teams, in businesses. And it would certainly meet that, um, that challenge and, and potentially have a very good uh, positive benefit. And, and I think it comes back to the opening points, one of the early points from Manda about a, a collaboration catalyst. Um, I was always called the critical friend at Honda, um, someone that had to go in and give an honest view that was sometimes unpalatable to some. Um, but on the other hand, it was done in a manner I hope that kept me friendly with Paul and I think he's still on the line today so that's sort of some significance there. Um, 
I know we, we, we um, started to talk about next time. Um, Amanda, I'm just wondering whether it's now opportune, unless there's any final last words, if anyone wants to raise their hand um, and turn their mic on um, to make um, a final I'd comment, like to, please do. I'd like, to, I'd like to throw someone in this if I could, if he's able to do it. I see Brian Downey's online and Brian's from um, Hong Kong. And um, I thought it'd just be worth asking a question whether there's a sort of the same regional appetite and approach from his experience working on major projects in Hong Kong. Is it sort of, are we in sync? Uh, thanks, Graham. Don't know if you can hear me. Yeah, we can, mate. Um, it's very interesting to hear the conversation. Um, at the moment, there's a big push on here for the adoption of NEC, which is very much put across as collaboration, uh, get everybody aligned. Uh, it's been a fantastic exercise in the UK. Uh, we've dealt with all of these things and you should adopt it out here. But I think the statistics you've given earlier show that that doesn't necessarily solve your problems. Um, I think historically we've had, yeah, the company I work at has historically had very few disputes and it's done it by having a fairly um, you know, collaborative approach in a genuine sense. Of, of just sort of getting things resolved and moving on with them. Um, and it's quite interesting as we move forward, you know, we've come under some criticism recently uh, from government that, you know, that they want to be, they want to see us strictly enforcing contractual provisions, not, not necessarily looking to resolve things. When people talked about collaboration, one of the things I've, I've noticed, not just in Hong Kong, but anywhere, is quite often you get good collaboration from the um, technical teams and from the project delivery teams, but a real disconnect at the commercial end. Um, and, and Graham, I know from with you that the only real solution to that is, is truly aligning everybody commercially and actually getting them um, so that you don't have these mismatches. And the pure aliancing model you talk about, uh, which few people are comfortable with um, or they always seek to try and change, you know, some of the things that have been identified with those historic comments you've talked about, whether it's underbidding, you know, there's more focus on getting a good price and a sensible price, um, you know, the, the sort of um, how do you solve problems while you're all aligned to try and solve the problems and how do you deal with disputes when you don't have disputes um, because you have to get together and solve it. So I think at the moment the challenge we've got is that there is still underbidding, you know, go back to your original quote, still chronic underbidding, people who accept um poorly bid costs because they're obsessed with low price. There's still risk dump everywhere. Um, there's still, uh, it's hard to, to measure uh, the value of a dispute solved when people are assessing against the budget, not necessarily against what, what the possibility is. So the, the, the persistence of these problems, um, despite so many inquiries, so many attempts, so many um, false dawns of solutions persists. And, and I don't know that there is a solution other than trying to get a commercial alignment uh, because that's where I see a lot of the difficulties. That's great. Thanks, Brian. Thank, thank you. Um, Amanda, um, yeah. you're going to talk about next time. Yes. Um, and I, I'm inclined to say, unless Sarah, who I know we couldn't get on earlier, manages to get her mic to work or our software to work, and I realise that both are equally culpable, um, I'm going to say thank you to all of you for your great questions and for your attention. And we do need to look at whether we time these events for, for longer <laughs> right from the start. Although I know that um, 
sometimes you do want to have permission to leave early, but that's a good question. So I just want to say thank you to Amanda and to Graham for a real tour de force on this subject and for all of you participants for your expertise, um, which is great for us on this side of the fence, so to speak. Um, I'm now going to be exiting and leave it to Amanda to discuss next masterclass, what, what are you interested in? Um, also to say, you know, we'd be happy to do this for you as, a, as an event if you're an organisation that would like a discussion around collaboration or, or something else. So um, we're a group of individuals who will listen and, um, and be um, catalysts for collaboration. And I introduce now to conclude the event with the master collaboration catalyst, Amanda. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Um, some of you will have uh, noticed that I've launched a poll which gives you the opportunity to give us a bit of a steer on what you'd like to hear from. Um, we have many subjects we'd like to talk on, but what is most important is that it's something that you'd like to engage in. Um, for sure, we, we do enjoy the fact that you are willing to spend some time with us. Um, and we hope that um, we, we give you something that is, is valuable, at, at least one insight that you can, you can take away and implement, um, well, this afternoon, hopefully. Um, so there's just one, one or two of you um, still to vote if you want to, you may not. And um, the next masterclass is on the, um, when is the next masterclass? It's on the 19th of May. And we haven't got the title yet. We've got several that we might like to run, but that's the purpose of running the poll, is to see what, um, what sort of interest we've got. And at the moment, the top vote goes for collaborative contracts. Um, we've got the next favourite is the critical friend, which is the third person who speaks to the mediation and peer review and those kinds of uh, activities which are very valuable in the work that we do. Um, and looking at what else, you know, popular is risk management and another popular one is innovation. So thank you all for voting there's one left is that one person if you want to vote vote now before i close the poll you know what they you know one come dancing or strictly you've got to hurry up oh right okay i'm closing the poll now but thank you very much for for doing that and please let us know what we did well and what we didn't do well um i'd like uh, we'd like very much to hear from you in that regard. Graham, thank you, uh, as always, for being a, a marvellous, collaborative <laughs> friend. Such a, such a pleasure, as I said, especially when you're just talking to the experts. So, <laughs> Well, we've got a lot of experts. I'm surprised they haven't uh, held us over the coals for some of the things that we've suggested, but maybe that's, maybe they'll go away and think about it and write to us privately. No, we don't know. Um, I'm sorry, Sarah, that you had techie problems. I will touch base with you to see which way you arrived into the class, whether it was the Eventbrite link or the direct link. 
Um, and everybody else, let me just say thank you very much for spending your time with us. It's very precious and we love your company. So, Thanks very much, all. Real pleasure. See you next time. Thank you. Bye. Amanda, Graham, Richard.